0: Welcome, everybody. Good to see you on this, quite gorgeous day, I believe. Today, Lord willing, we will finish our study of the book of Ephesians, which we've been on for quite a few months. This section, which we're beginning to study, we just got started with it last week. um, And today I want to get really into it. Now, you have a, you're going to see in a moment a slide that you have a copy of of the whole armor of god that's on page 13 of your note packet if you have that but anyway i uh, we will uh, follow that and look at that as well but i want to remind you of a couple of things and perhaps um just to to start this section um you have a copy of this too at the end of your packet but this is another way to look at uh, the overall big picture of the book of ephesians we have talked about sound doctrine produces godly living. This is another um, another iteration of that main point, uh, being in Christ, which is the first three chapters, which is heavily doctrinal, heavily theological, to verses chapters four through six, which is the living in Christ, your position, you're in Christ, that's your security, that's your identity, living in Christ. We've organized that material around the keyword walk, and it's you see on this chart, the walk of unity, of holiness, of love, of truth, of wisdom. Now, the key word in verses 10 through 20, the key word is stand. And so you'll see why that is such an important term in just a moment. The other aspect of this passage, this paragraph, uh, verses 10 through 20 of chapter 6, is uh, the reality of spiritual warfare. Now, there are there are two extremes on this, and that's what I want to avoid that. But whenever you hear the phrase, or if someone begins to talk about spiritual warfare, uh, with the one extreme would be the whole idea that, my goodness, everything that is happening to me, every, every time I trip, every time I, I cough, uh, Satan is causing me to do this. And so people begin to become almost paranoid. And they look under their bed before they go to sleep at night to look for demons. I mean, I'm being a little ridiculous, but that's one extreme. But as we study this, to remember First John 4.10 is really, really crucial. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Jesus Christ said, I have Conquered, I have defeated, I am victorious over Satan. Um, It is very important to remember that this reality of spiritual warfare is not something that we are to be catatonic about, where we are absolutely consumed by fear. If that is the case, you've stepped outside of where God wants you to be. However, the other extreme is, uh, and this is even more ludicrous well because jesus defeated everything i don't have to worry at all about evil i don't have to be concerned at all by evil neither is is the right position to have the reality is that we have an enemy he is the enemy of jesus he's the enemy of everything god represents he is given a name title the devil the serpent first uh, revelation chapter 12 verse 9 gives you all the different titles of Satan that are used uh, throughout the Scriptures. It is also important to remember that Satan absolutely hates the church. He hates, and when when I say church, I mean people that make up the organic body of Jesus Christ over which he is head. Satan hates the church. He hates God's people. And he will do everything he can to deceive them, to trip them up, to try to destroy the witness of the church. And he is, he can be very effective in doing that. And so Paul, as he is writing this paragraph, he is reminding the Ephesian believers, and if we go to our chart again, looking at at this, you you have been challenged to walk the walk of sanctification, to walk the walk of Loving obedience to Jesus. It's characterized by a walk of unity, holiness, love, truth, and wisdom. But you also must remember that you have an enemy. That enemy is Satan and all his minions. The Jesus calls them the fallen angels. If Revelation 12.4 is to be interpreted correctly, one-third of the angels join Satan in his rebellion. That is his army, if you want to use a military metaphor. And therefore, Paul is saying you must take both a defensive and an offensive posture as you engage in this reality of spiritual warfare. Now, I'm going to bring up the slide, which you have a copy of this in your notes as well. This is uh, published by Rose Publishing Center out in California. It's a a marvelous uh, representation, so that's why I like to use it. But uh, reminder that as Paul is writing this letter, the letters to the Ephesians, this is one of his prison epistles. The other three, uh, of course, are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But Paul is is writing this. He is chained to a Roman soldier. Uh, The Roman soldier guards served six-hour shifts, and they would guard for six hours, and and often they, they were guarded by two soldiers. We can't be absolutely certain that was the case with Paul. At least two. But I've often humorously thought, can you imagine what it would have been like to be chained to Paul for six hours? What do you think you're going to talk about? What do you think Paul is going to talk about? He's going to ask about the gladiator games? Is he going to be asking about how the Caesar's doing? He's going to be talking to these soldiers about Christ. And I've often thought some of the Roman soldiers, they're part of the imperial guard of Caesar. But, oh, no, I've got Paul today. I've got to be hearing him talk about this guy, Jesus. I would imagine that was true. But the other side of this is the book of Philippians. Paul tells us that there are Christians in the imperial guard of Caesar, and we also know that they got this nickname, the mouthpiece of the gospel in the first century were the Roman legions. The, in, in, in England, the first, as far as we know in terms of church history, the first penetration of the gospel in Londonium, which was the city London that they founded along the Thames River, was from Roman soldiers. And so Paul had a role in this, and the Roman soldier was highly disciplined, highly focused. They were trained well, and that was their life. You became a Roman legionnaire, you would be a Roman legionnaire for life. And so, Paul, I'm convinced of this, as he is under the Spirit's inspiration, I want to remind the Ephesian church of the reality of spiritual warfare. And so, he's looking at that soldier, and he says, what a perfect illustration of the resources the Christian has, what a perfect illustration of both offensive and defensive resources that the believer has. And again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he said, I'm gonna use that as the model of how you dress for battle each day. And so obviously that's figurative, dressing for battle each day, but the, the idea is not that we're absolutely gripped by fear, to where it becomes irrational paranoia, and we can't function. That is not what Paul's talking about. But also he's not talking about, well, Jesus defeated Satan, so you don't have to be concerned about the enemy. The New Testament states clearly we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh are our continued sinful desires and actions over over which we can have victory. And so he focuses here on the spiritual battle with the evil one. He gives him two names in this paragraph, devil in verse 11, evil one in verse 16. All right, now, with all that introduction, let's go again to the passage. And I'm going to begin, and then I want to go through fairly uh, thoroughly, or at least as thorough as I can be in an hour, what each one of these parts of the Roman soldier's garments uh, represented. Finally, and the finally, that's a great way to translate that. I mean, this is the last thing I want to talk about. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I mentioned this last week, the term strength and the term might, that's, I read from the ESV translation, that's how they translated those Greek terms. Those two terms are military terms. And so he's using, again, which is the figure that he's using here, the analogy he's using here of warfare. We are in a battle. So the important thing for you to remember, Paul is writing to the the Ephesians, is your resources for this battle are centered in God. They're not your resources. God has given you the resources to do battle, to follow that figure of speech, that analogy. So it, to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. These are the resources he gives to us. Put on the whole armor of God. He will define what that is in verse 14 and following. The whole armor of God, I showed you um, a picture of what that could look like if you want to try to imagine it. And here's the intended result that you may be able to stand. There's our key word. The key term of verse of chapters four, five, and the first part of chapter six is walk. Now the key term is stand. And that again is a military term. Stand your ground. Do not surrender territory. Do not give up. You're to stand against the di and that term that's translated schemes has the idea of diabolical schemes of the devil. And so the devil is one of the many titles of Satan. Again, I refer you to Revelation 12:9. You see all of his titles uh, listed there, itemized there. But the devil is one of those. The devil is the enemy of Jesus. The devil is the one who tempted Jesus. Our fullest account of that is in Matthew 4. The devil is the one who successfully deceived Eve, and caused Adam to intentionally choose to sin and rebel against God. It's in Genesis 3. And so that that is important that we, we understand Paul's identifying our enemy. We're to stand our ground against whom? Our enemy. He's identifiable. He has the title of the devil. He's leading a rebellion against God. He is the the abominable one. He is the Horrific one. He is the enemy of everything that God stands for. And as Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 and following details for us, he rebelled against God. And as I said a moment ago, if Revelation 12, 4 is interpreted correctly, a third of the angels followed him in rebellion. And so what is he doing? Well, I've often put it this way. The primary question is who has the right to rule? Is it God, who's the creator of this universe, the sustainer of this universe, and who offers salvation to this universe, or is it Satan? Because Satan is challenging God's rule. He says in Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. I seek to topple God from his throne and in the temptations of Jesus, as you recall, there are three of them. What Satan is trying to do is to get Jesus to act independently of his father to achieve the promise the father made to him. And so Satan uses every resource he has. One sidebar. You all, I'm pretty sure, have heard of the English author uh, C.S. Lewis. He was a professor of medieval and renaissance literature at Oxford, and then later in his life at Cambridge, the two great universities of England. He had come to know Jesus Christ. He is, his adult life began as an atheist, but he in Oxford, he began to surround himself with friends, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, George MacDonald, and others who were Christians, and he came to know Christ. And then he, Lewis, became one of the great apologists for Christianity. He wrote a little book, Called the Screw Tape Letters. I, I, I'm not sure I recommend this book, but if you're interested in a really insightful, imaginative book on the schemes of the devil, the diabolical schemes of the devil, that is a good book. Because Lewis understood what Christ had accomplished for us, he understood who our enemy is. And in his creative, imaginative allegory, he has dialogues between a trainer of the demonic forces and one of the demons being trained. And it's very imaginative, but it is really, really insightful. And so many have recommended it. I do. uh, as, as just a little bit of an insight from an incredibly intelligent individual who came to know Christ and became one of the great apologists of the 20th century so the schemes of the devil and then to to elaborate more forcefully he gives us a reason why we must stand because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood our enemy is not a human enemy flesh and blood is a is a metaphor for humanity we don't battle we aren't we aren't in battle with other human beings but against rulers Authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, it is generally understood by expositors that rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, there is a hierarchy of the demonic uh, um, uh, fallen angels. And it's, it's really difficult to be dogmatic about this because we don't know enough about it. But rulers and authorities represent hierarchical positions among the demonic army of Satan. And then note this, cosmic powers over the present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so in the heavenly places, it's literally in Greek, in the heavenlies. Where there is a battle being fought between the forces of evil, Satan, and the forces of good, God, fallen angels, and the righteous angels, and you you see some of that if you go back and read, for example, Daniel chapter ten, Daniel chapter nine, because the God pray, uh, Daniel has been praying. And he, the angel comes and said, I apologize, Daniel. It took me three weeks to get here because I was fighting the forces of Persia. I was fought, fighting the demonic rulers over Persia, which is an extraordinary statement. It kind of lifts the veil for a moment, and we peer into the, 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 the cosmic warfare going on. The book of Revelation talks about battles between the fallen angels and, and the righteous angels. Michael is called an archangel who leads the armies protecting the people of Israel. That's in Daniel chapter 12. I'm saying all that because what Paul is itemizing for us is how significantly organized these forces of evil are. But remember, 1 John 4.10, he that is in you is greater than he is in the world. We are not to be afraid. We are to be aware There's a big difference. We're not to be afraid, but we are to be aware of our enemy. There's genuine spiritual warfare going on. And it is over the struggle who has the right to rule. God's sovereign rule is being challenged. Now, I want to remind you of something else. God chose to defeat his archenemy, Satan, through the cross. Now, I intentionally would silent for a few seconds. I want you to think about that. God chose to defeat his archenemy through the cross because the focus of this warfare is over the heart, soul, and mind of human beings. Satan, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is the god of his age. That passage also teaches us that he blinds the eyes of the unrighteous. He puts a veil over the minds of the unrighteous. This is Satan. And that becomes so significant for us to understand that when we become a follower of Jesus or putting faith in Jesus and his finished work, that veil is lifted. That grip is broken. We're no longer enslaved to the powers of darkness. We're in the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1.13. Now I'm saying all that because... The reality of the battle is there, but the victory is assured, ultimately, because we have the resources of God. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. What are the resources God has given you? What are the resources God has given me to stand my ground in this battle, to not give in to his temptations and deceptions. And so, as Paul works his way through this, he again says, the purpose is that you will withstand an evil day, having done all, to stand firm. We're not surrendering territory to Satan, and we're no longer yielding to his evil deception and temptation he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And so the the resources, Paul begins in verse 14, the resources to stand, therefore, look how many times he's used that term stand, 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 having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, there's much to say about that, and if you want to look again at at the slide, the belt of truth, and you can see it there in the slide, and you have a copy of this, is it, it went around the waist of the soldier, and everything was linked to that belt. The breastplate is going to be linked, and, and what you'll see in just a minute, this is, uh, that's the core, that's the key. And so God has given us the resource of truth. God is not a God who lies. God is not a guy who God who misrepresents. He's a God of truth and his word is truth. So you and I are to to stand by embracing the truth that God has revealed to us. We know who God is. We know what God has done. We know God's attributes. We know who we are. We know what he has done by his grace as we appropriated it all by faith, I can just go on and on and on and on. All of the truths that we know for certain. And so, so, what what would be the strategy of Satan? The strategy would be of Satan would be to create an alternative set of truths. Those that should be put in quotation marks. An alternative set of truths. The Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. Satan says. Heavens and earth are a product of cosmic random chance, and science proves it. It's called the hypothesis of evolution. Vast amounts of time plus an impersonal force of natural selection plus random chance. That produces planet earth. That produces the heavens. Another truth. God says you are sinners. You're born in sin in sin. David says that in Psalm 51. Satan's alternative truth is, you're born good. You're a good person. If you fall into circumstances that are not terribly helpful, it's because of your culture that's around you. It's something wrong with your surroundings. All we have to do is clean up your surroundings, and your natural goodness is going to come to the surface again. That's an alternative, quote, truth, close quote. I'm saying all that because that's Satan's deception. And so if you don't know the mind of God through his revelation and his word, you're not going to know truth. But you put on the belt of truth because you know truth. God reveals truth. Jesus says in John 17, to his father, your word is true. David says in Psalm 119, that marvelous commentary on the word of God, it's the longest of the Psalms. He says it twice, your word is truth. Secondly, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, now that's, you can see where the breastplate is. And again, that is connected, that's linked to the belt in the Roman soldier. But the breastplate of righteousness, Is the definitive term of our position. That's what justification means. You've been declared righteous. Your secure position is your righteous, and that righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's not yours. It's Jesus' righteousness that has been imputed to your account, so to speak, when you put your faith in Him. So, it's to remember that. Satan has no authority over you. The chain That linked you to the duplicity and bondage of sin has been broken. That's the theme of Romans 6. You are therefore righteous. So that's who you are. And when Satan tempts you to try to show you how how evil you are, how defeated you are, you stand up and say, I belong to Jesus. He's declared me righteous because I put faith in his finished work, him and his finished work. You have no authority over me. And that's why, if we are experiencing, we've dealt with sin, we've confessed sin, if we have guilt that still hovers over us, that guilt is centered in Satan. This is what is so crucial, why Paul is ending his marvelous book of Ephesians with this tremendous instruction. Use the resources of God to stand. Don't surrender territory to Satan. Stand, because you know who you are. I have been given the truth through God's Word. I am righteous because I put my faith in, 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 in Jesus. And the third one is a little more complicated. You can see the they look like sandals. We can see the straps and so on. There are little hobnails on the bottom of each one of those, uh, those sandals, which enabled the soldier to stand his ground. But he says, and as... Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's not as easy as the first two, but the the whole idea. Let's work our ways back. Let's work our way back. Is the gospel of peace? That's the key. That's the key. The gospel of peace is your you you you've settled the issue with God. You have experienced the peace with God and the peace of God. Why? Because you have put your faith in Christ, you have been declared righteous. And so the gospel of peace is, through the finished work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, you, when you apply that to your life by faith, you're at peace with God. And that now becomes the good news. Gospel means good news, the good news of peace. And that means you're sure-footed. That means you're stable that means you're solid. no one can attack you because you have dug your hobnail boots your hobnail sandals which is what they were into the ground because you're settled you're solid you this isn't this isn't like standing in, in sand or in quicksand this is on you are on solid ground because peace has been restored between you and God. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 2, was verse 1, you are an enemy with God. You are an enemy of God. You put your faith in Christ, verse 4 and following, by grace through faith, you are now at peace with God. The Greek word is Irene, the Hebrew word is shalom. You are now shalom. Uh, the, one of the key words uh, in defining shalom is all things are settled, all things are stable and at peace with God. And that's what he means. The shoes of your feet, those hobnail boots, those hobnail sandals, are the source of steadiness, of sure-footedness, of stability, because you're at peace with God. And that, that readiness, I'm now, I'm ready for the action of defending myself and going on the offense, which we'll see in just a minute, because things are settled with God. I'm at peace with him. Uh, One of Billy Graham's first books he wrote was Peace with God, which was an incredible bestseller in the 1950s because he was was saying what people need to hear, to have stable, solid, sure-footed peace with God. Fourthly, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And as I drew an arrow, evil one is Satan. Now, the only the only criticism I have of this chart, that you have a copy I have, is that the, the shield is too small. The shield usually was a little bit longer than this. The width is, is about right but the typical Roman shield was a little bit longer. It covered, usually it covered from the head to the knees. As you can see, this doesn't, this doesn't quite cover from the head to the knees. So that's not that big of a criticism, but just to highlight that the typical Roman shield was a little bit longer. And often those shields were made of wood. And they would, before they would go into battle, they would soak that wood in water so that as the enemy witness was often the case, especially when they were trying to neutralize the Germanic tribes along the Danube or along the Rhine River, they would shoot flaming arrows at them. And if those flaming arrows would hit wood soaked in water, they're not going to stick. And so that's presumably the image that Paul is trying to create here. The shield of faith which we should extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We are people of faith. That is the greatest resource God has given to us as we deal with the enemy. Faith. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. Faith is that capacity to trust God, to believe God's promises, to hold fast to those promises, regardless of the circumstance. We are not circumstance-controlled people. We are spirit-controlled people. We are men of faith. The the hall of faith in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews just itemizes all the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, as you know. And this is the example that the people who made a difference for Christ, both in the early in the early accounts in the book of Acts or in church history, were the people of faith. Martin Luther changed the course of history in 1517 because he believed what God was saying. And I could just go on and on and on. You you know all what I'm talking about. But that I love how he says it the shield of faith, that that protects us. And so when Satan shoots his arrows at us, we put the shield up. You have no authority over me. Your enticement to evil, which is what temptation is, will get nowhere with me because I believe what God has said. I believe and have hope in his promise to send his son for me. I believe, I mean, it could go on and on and on. I trust him. And so Paul is saying that, That will allow you to extinguish all of the arrows of temptation that Satan fires at you day after day after day. He has no authority over us unless we allow him to have authority. You put your shield down, he can have some success with temptation. Fifthly, take up the helmet of salvation. If you look at the the diagram. That's a very, very good representation of a Roman soldier's, a legionnaire's uh, um, um, helmet. The helmet of salvation. That's our position. That's who we are. We are we are redeemed people, and that protects our mind. That protects our our, our ears. It protects that which enables us to understand. This is who we are. This is my identity. Righteousness is my ethical standing in Christ, because I put my faith in Him. Salvation, I am redeemed. I've been bought with a price. I belong to Jesus, all those different things that are stated. This is that absolute certainty of my identity. 242 times in the New Testament, I'm in Christ. That's who I am. And so that helmet of salvation is equally that's a gift from God, for by grace, through faith, you're saved, not of works, lest than any man boast, which we read in Ephesians 2. And so he said, that's another, that's another item of, uh, of resource that God has given to you. And then, in a sense, th- the most important offensive weapon, number six, is the sword of the Spirit. And so we don't miss this. Paul uses a relative clause, which is the Word of God. So the sword of the Spirit, it's not some mystical, ethereal, no, no, no. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Which, if you remember in 2 Timothy 3.16, that the Holy Spirit inspired the writings of of the 66 books of the Bible. Now, I thought I would comment on this because it's interesting, the word, the term word, is usually logos. But here, Paul chooses to use rhema. And so, just one little slide on that. What is the difference? Well, I think it is instructive that he chose to use the word rhema. Logos is the entire word of God, and it is metaphorically applied to Jesus. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. Word is logos there. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Paul chooses here in Ephesians 6 to use the term chrama, which focuses on a very specific spoken word at a specific time by a specific person. It's very personal. Whereas Lagos is very general, comprehensive, all-embracing, Rhema is very specific and very personal. So when you put it in this context, then the sword of the Spirit, which is your personal resource as the Word of God, that's what I think he's doing here. It is generally comprehensively the Lagos of God has been revealed incarnate Jesus Christ and in the written word inspired by the Spirit. But the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God, it is available to you for your personal individual use. That's why the psalmist says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. There is the offensive use of the Word of God. You go to Matthew 4, fullest account of the temptation of Jesus, Satan tempts Jesus three times. And each time, the Lord Jesus quotes from the Word of God. And he, he, he champions the Word of God as his primary offensive weapon, if you want to use the military metaphor. I have a question. So, uh, Yes. Um,
1: when you said I have hidden my, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, is that Rama? It's Devar in Hebrew. dvar in Hebrew. Does yeah. that equivalent to Rama or equivalent to logos? It can be both. It can I'm, be both. I'm interested in that connection when you get to further, further on, because I'm interested in this kind of back and forth between, you know, Rama and it's. Well, scope that, and ex-
0: that's it. I mean, it, it, it's like a number of things. Um, Rama and lagos are almost interchangeable they're almost almost synonymous mm-hmm. but there's a nuance to Rama that uh, because it, it's it's that very personal individual yes. application and that's why he chooses i don't think that nuance is is available in the hebrew language i don't i don't think it's devar that's the gen that's the important term for word in Mm -hmm. the Hebrew language, which is used throughout the Old Testament. I got it. So I just picked up on the connection there. So I just didn't
1: know if you were making it that strongly. Thank you. No,
0: no. All right. So we have now, if you go to our chart here, we have the six main resources that God has made available for us because we belong to him, we put our faith in him and so on. And then he adds something here, which often people miss or don't include, but I choose to include it, and so I've given it the number seven. It's prayer, and that is a resource that God has given us, that privilege and opportunity to talk to God about anything, and so Paul then says, again, it's it's quite a broad statement, praying at all times in by or with—that little preposition could be translated any one of those three ways—praying at all times in or by or with the Spirit thats all prayer and supplication. And so th- there is that um, important resource of prayer, and he's factoring in, I think, intentionally what we see in Romans chapter 8, where even if we do not know how to articulate a prayer, the Holy Spirit does articulate that prayer for us. I'm really paraphrasing the point he is making near the end of Romans chapter 8. But I think that's part of what, because remember, the in, by, and with, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And so the Holy Spirit even energizes and, and enables prayer in difficult situations. That's another fantastic resource we have, to stand, to not surrender any ground to Satan, to not give in to his deceit and duplicitous lies and his temptations, his enticements to evil. And so you look at those seven items, I mean, that's extraordinary. That's why Paul can say three times, stand, stand firm. Not in your own resources, you'll be mauled over in a minute, but by the resources God has given you. And this this passage, you know, just real quick, superficial, but it's very important in our family. This passage is extremely important to my wife. She there were there were times when she was very sick with her heart condition, autoimmune disease, a few years ago, and she prayed this every morning, just as she says. I'm getting dressed for battle this morning, honey. And, and all she would, it was just a constant reminder for her that she belonged to Jesus, and he's given her these resources. And and God has been very gracious. But this is one of her favorite passages. She, I cannot tell you how many times she's prayed through this. And so it's important for you and for me to understand why is Paul sharing this? He's sharing this. There is a spiritual battle. And you have the resources, now that you belong to Jesus Christ, by putting your faith in him, you have the resources to stand your ground. You have the resources to not surrender territory. You have the resources not to give in to temptation. You have the resources, I mean, go on and on and on and on and on. These are the resources we have. And that is why, for the Christian, it is so important to be Not exclusively because we are to go into the world and represent Christ, but to surround ourselves with people and to have the resources of the spoken word of God, the written word of God, the mutual encouragement that that comes with being with other believers and so on, because all of those reinforce this. This is who we are. These are the resources because of who we are for us to stand and not surrender ground to Satan. And so he has a few more words to say about prayer, which I want to get to in just a second, because then he gets very specific that he wants them to pray for him and so on. But now that I've gone through what I like to itemize out is these seven key resources, try to explain each one. Again, we've used this chart. And so you kind of have a visualization of what it would have looked like as Paul is writing it down and so on. So if you have any questions about um, the armor of God, the full armor of God, the whole armor of God, it's quite a wonderful passage. I encourage you to, many people have memorized this. It's so important to really come to terms with the resources that God graciously has given us. Is everybody with me? Okay, your silence means you understand it, or your yes. silence means you know, I lost you about resource number one.
1: We're, we're waiting we're, for the quiz here in a bit. Okay. Quizzes,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to give you a thought paper on this that, uh, to really personalize this. But uh, maybe that's something you could just do on your own time. But just really don't, men don't now, okay, I've read it, now I'm done. Keep, keep realizing who you are and realizing these resources. Paul, Jim, did, Paul did not do this just to fill our minds with some new truth. This is incredibly applicational for us. So I hope you you will you will do some follow up just for this. All right. Jim, I have a question um, about the the angels.
2: The angels supposedly, uh, and and I may be totally wrong on this, but you can put it up for us. Um, the angels don't have a free will of their own in the sense they can receive Christ. They are, they are who they are in the sense they are angels. Some are fallen and some are not. But how did the angels uh, fall? I know the battle of, of Lucifer was Satan, devil, the head. who he was one of the archangels. Or archangels I don't know what's correct there you do um, how could they rebel against God
0: if in fact they don't have a free will so well they... you're you're asking a question that unfortunately the Bible is silent on that issue it really is but I think, and this is not original with me, Fred Dickinson, in his book, Angels, Good and Evil, Uh, it's a wonderful book on theology, but anyway, he speculates, and I think correctly, we know, and again, uh, if you read uh, Ezekiel 28, verses 12 and following, and then Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following, you have, uh, in both those books, the energizing power behind these secular rulers, which were being addressed in this passage, is Satan. That becomes very clear. And Ezekiel 28 describes Satan before he rebelled against God. He was the most powerful created mm. being God created. He apparently had authority over all of the angels. Yeah. And he he it was, it was beautiful, he was gorgeous in terms we would use. He had immense power. But from Isaiah 14 and, and 12 and following, which is the record of his rebellion against God, we must infer, there's no other way you can conclude this, that Satan had that, your phrase was, the free will to rebel against God. Because right. he chose to rebel against God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, He's not a robot. God isn't pulling strings. I mean, he's choosing. And so, again, I'll go to this verse. If Revelation 12 four is interpreted correctly, a third of the angels followed him in that rebellion. And so, to a degree, um, there's no other way to conclude this. To a degree, angelic beings do have free will. The capacity to follow the Lord in obedience, the capacity to rebel against God in disobedience. That's why Christ calls, the the Lord's continual, consistent reference to the demonic forces is fallen angel. That's what he calls them.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, therefore, they they chose that rebellion. So, in that sense, they had a degree of free will. Didn't and it so, say that
1: that uh, um, there's a verse in the summer that says, until evil was found in you, right? That, That's in Isaiah 14. Yeah. Isaiah 14. It's the until. So, But it doesn't have the causal actor of that. Did I choose that? Was it injected? Is it a third thing? It, I found that really hard to because there's so little information
0: on that. Well, there is. Other than Isaiah 14, 12 and following, we have no other record of the rebellion. That he is rebelling is clear. Yeah, that's <laughs> <But> <laughs> obvious. God has, God has chosen not... To give us the detail of when this occurred, the exact circumstances under which this occurred, we Pause. don't know. It's just God creates, Genesis 1 and 2, and Genesis 3, Satan shows up. <laughs> right. Which means that somewhere there, I have an opinion on that based on how I interpret Genesis 1 2. But that doesn't matter. That's I don't want to get into that. That's too, too detailed. I'll lose 90% of you because most of you don't care about that particular issue, how you interpret that. That, <laughs> uh-huh. that Satan rebelled is a given. And we we have to conclude, using the phrase that Rush uh, alluded to there, until evil was not, that there was a time, Ezekiel 3 28, 12 and following there's a time where Satan's loyal to God, his devoted leader, he, you know, he's doing what God wants him to do. Yeah. But at some point the Bible's silent when the Bible silent circumstances, evil was found in his heart. Paul identifies the fundamental sin. I believe it's in Second Timothy, of uh, maybe chapter two, but he defines the central sin of Satan with pride, which dovetails perfectly with Isaiah 14 12 and follow. That it's it pride. I mean, and, and that's why he says that was Satan, don't let that grip you, he's saying to Timothy. And so, I mean, I'm answering uh, Fred's question yes. and then what Russ has said, kind of together. But I, I think we must conclude that the angelic beings do have a degree of free will.
1: Yes, and
0: it's, I, I mean, it's I mean, also the no way you can you can't avoid that yeah, there. Right. But the details and circumstances of it, and and with that. The Bible also teaches pretty clearly that this, the angels are not redeemable. Yeah. In right. other words, those who chose to rebel against God, they're not going to have the opportunity of salvation. Their fate is sealed, and you you see that in a couple of the instances of demonic uh, uh, possession in the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, uh, twice. In one instance, there in, in um, on the uh, east shore of the Sea of Galilee near Kirsie. the 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 demons say are you here before the time are you here to judge us now and then there's another instance where it's almost identical and so they understand their fate is sealed they understand their destiny yeah yeah. which is amazing to me um (laughs) that if you know you're defeated you keep fighting but that's that that happened but anyway and
1: and there's also a time element in here too right it's Going back to God, it's this he who inhabited eternity. We're thinking about this temporally, yes. right? And temporal only applies here, not in the head. And that may be why it's omitted, because it may be too difficult for us to...
0: Well, that's it. I mean, it. it God's just chosen not to explain to us when and how all this occurred. It's just, it's occurred, here's your enemy, right. I solved
1: the problem for you and we reiterate it temporally, right? Because that's how we have to
0: interpret everything and maybe the answer is non-temporal. It was interesting, Um, I forget what night it was, we had uh, the television on, I don't remember what we were watching, but it it was, I don't know what the program, I can't remember, but it was incredible. Throughout that, I think it was an hour program, but throughout that program, there were two television things coming up this summer, they're, they're drama type things, both dealing with the devil, both dealing with satanic stuff. And Peggy looked at me and said, Can you believe this? I mean, this is being, this was entertainment. And the one, it's just called, the title, I think, was just called The Evil One. Now, and Peggy said, Can you imagine wanting to watch that? Yeah. And that, you know, she, but she's responding as a Christian, but this obviously, because this kind of stuff sells. Yeah. You know, you you think of yeah. over over time over the century, over the century, how much satanic stuff sells, yes. how much how marketable it is, and you and, and what Hollywood is producing, but also people that don't know Christ are drawn to evil, and that is when Satan snags, traps, and has them. And it's when you get outside of the United States, although I'm seeing it more now in the United States than I ever did in my whole life. but you get outside the United States, there are blatant, blatant, oppressive examples of Satan and Satanic power everywhere. It's much more subtle in the United States because we're, quote, so sophisticated, close quote. So Satan, that's what Lewis deals with in Screwtape Letters. Identify your audience, then use your scheme. Highly educated, wealthy people, they're not going to accept this. So you, you go after them in another way. Feed their pride. Feed their self-sufficiency. Feed, feed their, their, their their self-elevation. I don't need God. Look at all I have. I mean, it's really, it, it's, that's an interesting, um, it really is an interesting allegory that, that Lewis has written. Because he draws it all from the Bible, these tactics that the evil one uses. And Paul is alerting us. He has no authority over you. Here are your resources. Keep them constantly in front of you. Here's who you are. Don't give in. Stand your ground. Don't surrender territory. All right?
2: And then in heaven, uh, Jim, there will be the angelic host surrounding the throne and praising the Lord.
0: So, I don't know if they create more angels or <laughs> if that's... There's no, there's no evidence that there are, that God is creating more, maybe he will, but there's no evidence that the yeah. angels are being created. But yeah, it's really quite wonderful in the book of Revelation, these concentric circles of worship. Yes. Four living creatures, the 24 elders, the angelic, and then the hosts and hosts and hosts, myriads, yeah. myriads and myriads and myriads. Uh, people around the throne of God worshiping. Yeah, it's quite wonderful. Thank you. All of the fallen angels will be banished to the lake of fire forever, along with Satan, um, and so on. So, yeah. Thank you. Their, their destiny is sealed. All right, as we close out—what uh, time is it here? Oh, my goodness, it is just about time. Okay, as we close out, Paul then— um, in the uh, middle of verse 18, and then uh, it was verse 19. Keep alert with all perseverance. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth, boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm am an ambassador, and so on. And so you see, again, the prayer, praying at all times, but then pray for the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, but pray, pray for all the saints. For believers. And then Paul says, Pray for me. Remember, he's in prison. He has the, I believe he had the sense he was going to be released. I think he was released. He will continue to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for a few more years before he's executed. And so you just, the book of Ephesians is a tremendous book. I chose this a number of months ago whenever we we started it. Uh, I love to teach this, and it is the perfect illustration. Of the connection between sound doctrine and godly living. And no book in the Bible articulates that so clearly as the book of Ephesians, and ending with this quite magnificent review of the resources we have from God. Don't depend on your own resources in this battle, depend on the resources of God, and Paul itemizes them. And then he just ends the book with um, now, well, can get all the other slides that I have here. <laughs> with this, um, there's it, not a lot in this. He's sending Tychicus, who is his beloved. He is apparently the one who delivers the letter to the Ephesian church. But then look at this. Look at the, the, the ending of the book. Peace be to the brothers and sisters. Love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Notice those words. Peace, shalom, love is used three times, and grace. Sound doctrine produces godly living. These are key doctrinal terms. And that, and actually I should have added, you see the term faith. And so you just have this. Uh, you kind of have this fantastic summary of the practical applications of what he's taught. Peace be to the brothers, that brothers are gender neutral, brothers and sisters, that, you know, you you represent the Lord, the God of peace. You're at peace within. I'll be at peace with one another. Love with faith. That's the faith that supernaturally comes from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to, grace be with all. We live by grace, there's common grace, there's saving grace, there's sustaining grace, with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ and with love incorruptible. The agape that Christ is, is the agape that's incorruptible. It never deteriorates. It it never goes out of existence. Love is eternal. And so it's just a, again, it's unique. It's a unique ending. To a letter. Uh, a lot of Paul's letters don't end quite this way, and it's just a quite wonderful way to end the book. All right, well, it, it's kind of rare to say this, but we finished another book of the Bible in our study together, so I hope it's been a blessing for you. It's, again, just very personally for me, Ephesians is one of my favorite books. I love to teach it, and it is right spot on to where I think the Church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century should be teaching and preaching sound doctrine, because that's what changes people's lives.
2: Jim, you bless us. You bless us every time you come and share uh, this word and break it out for us. We're so pleased that we have you as a a resource here to share and answer our questions, bonehead sometimes as they may be, but uh, earnest
0: equally. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's, Amen. An it's an honor for me to teach the Word of God. Well, next week, uh, we're going to begin. It's a, a short gospel. I have one more minute. Let me use it. Uh, the Gospel of Mark. It's our shortest gospel. Uh, it was written to Gentiles. It was written about A.D. 49, A.D. 50. It's by far the earliest gospel. Now think about that. That's only 20 years, basically, after Jesus went back to the Father. So this is an important authoritative gospel. There is no doubt that Mark' primary resource was Peter. He is he Peter was his main resource. He did his research. He did his investigation as Mark through Peter, and that that becomes very important as I'll talk about next week in the introduction. And Mark is an unusual gospel because where. Matthew, Luke, and John elaborate on things Mark doesn't. It's like a docudrama. It's bang, 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 bang. Event after event after event. And he has a thesis to prove, and we'll look at that thesis in verse 1 of chapter 1 next week. So I hope you'll come back for the class. I'm going to pray because I've got to get going to my next uh, appointment here. Father, we thank you for the gospel, or, well, for the gospel of Mark. We're going to begin studying, but we thank you for the book of Ephesians Thank you for the Holy Spirit for inspiring it. It's one of the most magnificent teaching books of the Bible. It teaches sound doctrine in the first three chapters. It teaches godly living in the last three chapters. It's Organized around that important term walk and concluding with that important admonition to stand. Surrender no ground to Satan because you have given us the resources to stand. And dear Lord, I hope what we went through today is clear to these men. It's so important that they they grasp and understand and apply to their lives what Paul has taught here. So bless these guys, give them a good rest of the day. If there are special needs in their lives, God, you know them. We never pray to give you information. You have that. We pray to intercede and to 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 represent you to others. And we want to do that. So amen. meet each need according to your perfect will. So we commit the rest of our day to you. May we all represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, guys. Thank you, Jim. You. Thank, You're thank well. you for your time. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Jim.